Good morning again. Jeff, excellent song selection. After the sermon we're doing, Come Thou Fount. After Come Thou Fount, can we please do One Thing Remains? Excellent. An extra song. A treat for this morning. As, I, as we go through the songs, I'm noticing over and over again how well the lyrics go with the text that he knew was coming. And every once in a while, I'll grab a, a section of lyrics and put it into the opening prayer. But there were too many, so we just have to sing it again. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Mr. Mulder, excellent work. Thank you. That was, that was excellent. Make sure you give him personal thanks afterwards. All right. Please open your Bible to Philippians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there are several of them scattered around the edges of the room. And uh, if you don't have one of your own, you are welcome to uh, take one of those with you and keep it. Uh, Last week, we began a nine-week sermon series in the book of Philippians. We're intending for it to be nine weeks. And uh, we're going to go through this letter verse by verse, passage by passage. And it's our intention that each week will build on the previous week and set the stage for the following week. So if you miss one, if you're traveling or sick or whatever, uh, go online, get caught up because it'll help you get ready for the week to come. Something else will help you get ready for the week to come is reading ahead. The next few weeks, we're going to be in Philippians chapter two. No secrets up front about it. You know where we're going, Philippians chapter two for the next three weeks. So uh, if you're going to spend the time in the room listening to the message, you might as well get everything out of it that you possibly can. So uh, with that in mind, let's pray for our time together this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this chance that we have to Uh, Look into your word and see what it is that uh, you said, not just to the Philippians, but to all your people uh, through this letter. And thank you that uh, Pastor Riddle got us started last week. Thank you for the weeks to come. Pray especially for our time in these next few minutes that uh, we'll be able to uh, clear our mind of unwanted distractions and uh, be able to hear what it is that you are saying through these words that you delivered uh, so many years ago. It's in your great name that we pray, Lord. Amen. Last week, we preached through the first, not we, Pastor Riddle preached through the first 18 verses of this chapter, and uh, we saw the uh, joy of ministry partnership that Paul shared with the folks in Philippi. In verses 3 through 11, he talked about his joy that the gospel was advancing in their church, in their lives. In verses 12 through 14, he rejoiced that the gospel was advancing where he was, even though he was in prison and not able to preach openly and publicly. And then in verses 15 through 18, Paul rejoiced that the gospel was advancing abroad because there were people who were emboldened to preach, looking at Paul's example Some of them for good reasons, some of them for not so good reasons. But uh, as he said, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. As we move into our passage today, Paul keeps right on rejoicing, even though his near future looks dark. If you're one to write stuff down and take notes, our big idea for this morning will be this. The gospel will continue to advance, will continue to advance through bold and faithful perseverance during opposition. The gospel will continue to advance through bold and faithful perseverance in the face of opposition. Our title this morning is The Joy of Faith, and we're going to see that come really in three different flavors. We're going to have Paul's joy of faith that he will be delivered, and the Philippians, and therefore all Christians, joy in the faith, which is knowing Christ, and then towards the end of the passage, 
through the bold and faithful perseverance in the face of opposition, we will see the joy of faithfulness. And those are three sides of the same coin, if you take my meaning. Okay. The elder team has sort of an ongoing good-natured discussion about whether or not electronic communication is a good thing on balance. The, uh, you know, the Facebook and email and the uh, text messages. We can all agree that Twitter is stupid, but the other three, um, we're, we're undivided on, or we are quite divided on, because uh, we've seen the mayhem that can result when people say dumb stuff on the screen that they would never say in person. Uh, and on the one hand, you got folks who say it's just it's just a tool for communicating. Nobody ever says anything on a screen that they weren't already thinking inside. And on the other hand, you got folks who say, yeah, but there's such a reduced barrier and then this false sense of distance that people will say things on a screen they would never dream of saying out loud to somebody's face with their own lips. And uh, there's 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 one guy who I won't quote him, of course, because I don't want to, you know, divide up sides on the elder team, of course, but he says, you know, everybody's got a backbone on email, but try saying that to my face and see what happens. And there's a lot of truth in that. I can remember a couple weeks ago uh, during the political conventions, watching the Facebook newsfeed uh, during some of the speeches. And on the one hand, you got one guy talking, 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 saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe a word this guy is saying. This is so ridiculous. And on the other hand, you got somebody else saying, oh my gosh, this guy is so amazing. How can anybody not believe what he's saying? And you sort of cringe as you realize these people, they're not talking to each other, but they could be because they're both Prairie View people and they're both in the room this morning. And I'm not pointing at any of you in particular, but you may or may not know who you are. And that's it's one of the realities that people will say things on the screen that they would never dream of saying out loud or to each other or in person. Our passage this morning talks about that idea of boldness or being timid and intimidated and hesitant to speak. When given the opportunity to speak on Christ's behalf and pay the cost for taking that stand, we could be timid or we could have the proper response, which is to be bold. Not obnoxious, all caps, Facebook bold, but the simple confidence that comes from uh, our joyful faith in the Lord. So let's take a look at that, and we're going to be starting in, uh, there's a ridiculous paragraph division here. We're going to be in the middle of verse 18 of Philippians chapter 1. He has previously said, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit, excuse me, the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So great news, we can rejoice because Paul is going to be delivered. Delivered from what? Uh, what is it? What danger is he facing? What peril is he in that he would rejoice at being delivered from? Well, he's in prison, so it's uh, somewhat logical to think, well, maybe he's talking about being delivered from prison. But in the next few verses that follow, we'll see he can't be talking about deliverance from prison because he says, even if they kill me here in prison, I will still rejoice. So uh, whatever is driving this, it is not uh, being set free from prison and being released. Perhaps he could be talking about deliverance into eternal salvation, which is definitely something to rejoice about for sure and is definitely coming in his future. But uh, he actually tells us exactly what it is he's going to be delivered from. So uh, while he might have eternal salvation partly in mind, let's see what he does actually say. This will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. 
All right, he's worried about being ashamed. What is it that he might have cause to worry about being ashamed of? What is it that he could do that would bring shame or disgrace upon himself? Is he worried about his upcoming trial, that somebody's going to testify and say something damaging or embarrassing? Is he worried that he might be convicted and sent to prison or even executed? Is that the shame that he is worried about? Again, let's look and see what he actually says. I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He sets up a contrast. I'm not going to be ashamed. Instead, Christ will be honored, glorified, magnified. Um, he, uh, that word courage that he uses means bold, open, plain speech and proclamation. I'm not going to be ashamed, but rather through bold and open speech, I will honor glorify and magnify Christ. So uh, follow the contrast that he's making here. This is going to require some thinking on your part, perhaps. He uh, wants to avoid shame, which would be a good thing, by glorifying Christ. So what is it that he's afraid of? What is it that he's concerned he's going to be ashamed of? That would be failing to honor Christ through what he does. He wants to avoid the disgrace, the embarrassment, the shame of failing to honor Christ in his speech, his manner of life, his manner of death, and that's the shame that he wants to be delivered from. Like Pastor Riddle said last week, for Paul, being in prison was just one more opportunity to preach the gospel. And looking forward to his trial and even, if necessary, his execution, those would be yet more opportunities to preach the gospel. But they are going to be opportunities he's going to be tempted to avoid because they will involve a certain amount of unpleasantness. At any time, he could have thrown in the towel, thrown up his hands and say, you know what? Never mind. Forget this Jesus stuff. Forget I said anything. I just want out of here. I want to go home. Just forget I ever said anything. But that would be shameful. He would bring shame upon himself and worse, shame upon the name of Christ if he were to recant in that way. He does not want to blow an opportunity to preach Christ, proclaim Christ, and show Christ to be even more valuable than his own life. The gospel must advance. That's why he preaches. That's why he's in prison. And he has faith that God will continue to advance the gospel. That's what he's rejoicing about. Verse 19, I know I will be delivered. Maybe delivered from prison. For sure, someday delivered into eternity. But definitely, right now, delivered from the shame of failure. Through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will Turn out for my deliverance. Now, why is he so confident? How can he be so sure of this? If he's drawing so much joy from this confidence, isn't he potentially setting himself up for disappointment? Uh, he says here, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He knows that the Philippians are praying for him and that the Holy Spirit is helping him. And he knows that the Holy Spirit is helping him by having the Philippians Pray for him. Even if they don't know specifically what to be praying for, he knows that God, through the Holy Spirit, will prompt Christians to pray for others, even in the absence of specifics. But he does know that the Philippians are praying for them, and that deepens the sense of joy of partnership that he is sharing with them. By working through the prayers of the Philippians, the Holy Spirit not only gets to work through Paul's life, but also in the Philippians as well. They were able to grow in Christ grow as a church, and grow in their joy as they witness God answer their prayers. If the Philippians hadn't prayed earnestly for Paul, 
they would never have been able to taste the sweetness of God's deliverance. And that's an application question for us. Do we, as a church, pray for others, like our missionaries, with uh, enough energy and feeling that we can actually rejoice when we see God work in their situations? Do we pray uh, as families, as individuals? Do I pray for others with enough depth of feeling and vigor that I actually care whether or not God works in that situation? Do you know people well enough that you're able to actually pray for what they truly need? Do you let other people know you well enough so that they can pray for you in a meaningful way? Because it's one thing to say, you know, oh, uh, I've got a killer week coming up at work and my grandma's toe. Pray for those things. Don't bother praying about my raging bitterness and unforgiveness issues. Just, you know, the week at work and my grandma's toe. That's what I need prayer for. Do you let people know you well enough? You have a prayer insert in your bulletin. You have a small group. There is uh, easy access, bottom shelf, low-hanging fruit for uh, spiritual joy for us. The more we pray in these situations, the more joy we have when we see God work. Well, we've seen the joy of faith. Paul had confident expectation and hope and knowledge that God was going to deliver him from the danger of not speaking boldly about Christ, and that faith led directly to Paul's joy. Let's see how he continues. I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul rejoiced because live or die, he was going to be advancing the gospel by boldly and faithfully persevering through all of life and death. If he dies, he will die a death that glorifies Christ all the way to the end and show him to be worthy of the ultimate sacrifice. If he remains, he would have many more years of fruitful labor. What would that fruitful labor involve? Verse 25, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress. That's the same word that in verse 12 is translated advancement. The gospel is advancing, translated here progress, for your progress in the faith, but not just plodding, slow and steady, step by step, inching your way towards death. Progress and joy in the faith. It's not progress for the sake of progress, learning for the sake of learning, church for the sake of church. The ultimate goal of all this, the ultimate goal of the gospel is our worship, our joy in Jesus Christ, that you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. To glory in Christ Jesus means to boast, to celebrate, to rejoice in, to revel in who he is and what he has done. They prayed for Paul's deliverance and he was delivered for their joy. Paul wants to get out, to do more work so that he can increase their joy. This series in Philippians It's not just about learning what Paul wrote to a bunch of people long gone. It's not even about growing in personal humility, although those are both good things. This should be leading us towards greater trust and joy in the Savior that Paul is discussing here. And nothing glorifies God like his people rejoicing in him. And that brings us to verse 27. Thus far, Paul has been discussing his own 
situation, sort of giving them a status update. But uh, my study Bible notes said Paul is not merely musing on his own crisis. He is giving the Philippians a model of the service driven life. Now he's going to turn the corner and talk about how God is going to be working in their circumstances to advance the gospel. Paul had an opportunity to speak boldly, and so do they. And how will that happen? How will that happen in their church? How will they be able to take advantage of that circumstance? Verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. When I first read that sentence, I was not pleased because it sounds like he's adding this great burden upon us. Let your life, your conduct, your behavior be worthy of Christ. And that's a standard that none of us, especially myself, are ever going to be able to reach. But fortunately, he explains exactly what it is that he means. Our manner of life uh, that carries the idea of citizenship, which would be meaningful to these folks because Philippi, unique in that whole region, was a Roman city. And these people were Roman citizens. And he's saying to them, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, let your behavior, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And worthy means consistent with, in alignment with, in accordance with, fitting, suitable, proper, appropriate. As citizens of God's kingdom, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. Let it be consistent with the truths of the gospel. And he tells us what he means by that. It's not that we have to earn our salvation or that we have to earn the rights to keep our salvation or that we have to keep making ourselves better and better and better and better until eventually we're ready to go into heaven. None of those are true. Those are all false. He tells us exactly what it is that he means. Continue on. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and lastly not frightened in anything by your opponents first they are standing firm in one spirit which places an emphasis on relational unity john 13 jesus told his disciples right before he went to cross they will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Same idea, completely different flavor from Paul in 1 Corinthians 16. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. So not just a mushy, ooey-gooey kind of love, but the sort of love that actually helps each other to stand firm in the faith. I know that there's room for growth in that area here at Prairie View because Prairie View is full of admitted sinners. We're going to have problems in our families and in our small groups and in leadership. And that's normal for sinners. How we respond to those problems, how we deal with that conflict through uh, openness and, and firmly and, and lovingly, that says something to the watching world. The first avenue of behaving in a manner worthy of the gospel is to... Uh, have that spirit of unity and love for each other as we stand firm together. Second, striving side by side with one mind. Striving for what? Striving for the faith of the gospel, the specific beliefs, the content of the gospel. Who Jesus is, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, and what Jesus did. Lived a perfect life, died a horrible death, paid for our sins on the cross, earned the righteousness that we could never earn, reconciled us to God. Those are the basic non-negotiables of the Christian gospel. And ideally, this would mean that there are no factions or denominations within the broader church. But unfortunately, that ship sailed a long time ago. 
Paul fought against this in 1 Corinthians 1 when he said, don't have rival teachers, rival factions within your church. And it was one of the great weaknesses of modern Christendom that we are so splintered and scattered into all these thousands of denominations. It ought not be. And one day it won't be. One day Jesus will come on a white horse carrying a sword and he will say, finished. And we will all go into eternity as one church, not as the mess of 10,000 that we see now. But in the meantime, we are to avoid making the problem any worse and strengthen the bonds of friendship and fellowship across churches as appropriate, together contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude put it. Paul tells them that their second avenue of behaving worthy of the gospel is by striving together side by side for the content of the gospel. The third avenue is in verse 28, not being frightened in anything by your opponents. Who are these opponents and why would the Philippians be frightened of them? Based on the description that Paul gives in these verses right here, we can see that they have one key thing in common. Their interests are threatened by the advance of the gospel. So, uh, the religious Jewish leaders were threatened by the advance of the gospel because their religious power and authority was being challenged and weakened. The uh, merchants in these Greek pagan cities were losing out on a lot of business as the gospel was advancing because apparently once you have a relationship with the creator of the universe, you no longer need to buy little silver figurines that you can pray to in your basement. And so as the gospel was advancing, people quit buying stuff. That's how Paul got himself in trouble in Ephesus because the silversmiths got all out of whack because he was taking away their business. The gospel is bad for business if your business is idolatry. And so Paul was ruffling a lot of feathers throughout the world. And then, of course, the Roman authorities were going to be upset because not only are the Christians claiming an authority higher than Caesar, Christ is Lord, but they're making everybody else upset, too. And if there's one thing the Romans love, it's order. And if folks are getting upset, then the Romans are upset and then nobody's happy. So the Christians have it coming from all sides. Whoever Paul is referring to exactly, they were threatened by the advance of the gospel and they were in a position to cause harm to the Philippians. So Paul tells them your third avenue of behaving in a manner worthy of the gospel is to not be frightened by your opponents. Don't be intimidated. Don't be skittish before them. Jesus told us in Matthew 10, that we will be hated, slandered, misinterpreted, misrepresented, scorned, rejected. They will hate us, try to put us to death and our families too. We haven't seen that in America so much recently, but increasingly so. But Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who is it that he's talking about? I asked Brianna last night and she got it right on the fifth try. Does anybody think that they can do better? Who is it that Jesus is talking about that we are to fear? No, nobody's going to try to do better than Brianna. Okay. It's God. God is the one that we are to fear because God is the one that has eternal power and eternal wrath against sin. But once Jesus describes God in this rather severe way, he turns and says, he's your father. He knows you. He loves you. Romans 8 talks about all sorts of dreadful things that can come against us in this world. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. Any of which could come against any Christian at any time. But these are merely the instruments of temporary suffering. And who can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Nobody. Ever. 
So we have these three avenues of letting our conduct be worthy of the gospel. Unity in our relationships, unity in our doctrine and mission, and not being intimidated by our opponents. You'd think there'd be more, but for Paul's purposes here, it's unity and courage. Unity and courage. How will this unity and courage serve to advance the gospel? Continue in verse 28. This is a clear sign to them, the opponents. This is a clear sign to your opponents of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Apparently, when we let our life and our conduct be worthy of the gospel, God is giving out a clear sign, putting forth a convincing proof to the opponents that they are on a path for destruction. But these Christians that they're persecuting are on a path for salvation. How does that work? If this is such a clear sign, then it wasn't clear to me the first time I went through uh, why and how this was supposed to work. And after reflection, I think I figured out how this is supposed to work. When opposition comes against us, whether it's uh, the simple cultural snobbery against those backwards, ignorant, bigoted Christians, or whether that escalates into actual physical persecution, Paul is calling for a posture of unity and courage. That's the kind of behavior that is worthy of the gospel. If God has eternally saved a bunch of undeserving sinners, then you would think that a measure of humility and unity and courage and confidence would result from that. Paul's persecutors had no power over him because they could not touch him. There's nothing they could do to him. If they let him go, he would continue preaching and working among the churches. If they kept him locked up in prison in a dungeon, he would end up converting half of their guards. And if they killed him right away, they would simply be delivering him into the presence of his Savior and giving him another opportunity to proclaim how precious Jesus was to him. And that's the pickle that is faced by all oppressive regimes. The more you crack down, the more martyrs you create, the more uh, you're providing evidence that maybe these martyrs are onto something and they've found something that's bigger and greater than life in this world and that fear and suffering cannot touch them. People notice we have God and they can't change that. So there's really only so much that can be accomplished with mockery and rejection and worse. Contrast that reaction to our natural reaction, which uh, is, is rather different. As opposition begins to gather strength, we are tempted to either be timid and uh, shrink back and say nothing and keep the peace. Uh, we want people to like us and to accept us, and we don't like it when people that we esteem, like our, our neighbors and our co-workers and our, our family and our friends, uh, think less of us or reject us or mock us because of what we believe about this book and, and who wrote it. So when they stand against us, our first inclination is to um, hunker down and uh, back off or to react in a hostile manner and uh, to fight back. So instead of standing firm and striving together in unity and courage, we, we shrink back and get isolated and hunker down, have a holy huddle and get smacked down into silent submission. Or alternatively, the church in America has an unfortunate tendency to posture up and fight back. You know, we're going to get organized and get out the votes and take back our culture and reestablish our dominance because they've threatened our interests and so we're going to threaten theirs. Um, don't get me wrong. Please, please vote. But don't think that by voting for candidate A or for candidate B, you're going to be changing the culture for Christ. The advance of the gospel is not about creating a more moral environment or um, reestablishing the dominance of family values. The advance of the gospel comes through making disciples. 
which is not something that you do in a ballot booth, or by eating huge quantities of chicken sandwiches. We may have made a strong statement that day six weeks ago, but uh, whether or not it had anything to do with Jesus being the savior of sinners, I don't know. Neither timidity nor hostility are worthy of the gospel. Being timid is a denial that Christ is Lord and he's worth standing for. Going hostile is a rejection of Christ's example of humble service. We're going to see that next week as we move into chapter two. The proper response is to have the mind of Christ, which is one of humble service, just like Jesus. Let's finish out this chapter and this line of thought that Paul has us on. Verse 29. Clear sign to them, their destruction, your salvation, that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. He's granted belief. For the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. When we respond to opposition with Unity and courage, instead of timidity or hostility, we are giving a clear sign from God to everyone that the opponents are on a path towards destruction and the Christians for salvation, both of which are from God. Best example of this would be Jesus himself on the cross. Roman centurion down there, you put him on the cross just like he had a thousand uh, condemned criminals before. And as Jesus dies, the Roman, the centurion, the soldier, the killer says... This one, this one, this one surely was the son of God. But God was not simply giving us a means of showing up our opponents and and jabbing our thumbs in their eyes. He's giving us a method to win over our opponents. The church never had a more ferocious opponent than Paul. But even among opponents, God is advancing the gospel. The person you view today as a fierce opponent of Christ might tomorrow be the person sitting on the other side of the conference table or the lunch table or the dinner table. These are these opponents of Christ. They're men and women made in the image of God, and they are lost. They are blind. They are adrift. They are confused. They are lost in their sins. They are deceived by an enemy who hates them and hates God and thinks nothing of using them as pawns in his hopeless war against God. Whoever you think the opponents are, Republicans, Democrats, gays, the 1%, the atheists, the Muslims, the vegans, the Minnesota Vikings, whoever you think the opponents are, the proper response to them is not militant hostility, but to bravely, openly, calmly, winsomely engage them as individuals and to demonstrate to them the joy that you have through your faith in Christ. Verse 29, Paul takes for granted that God is generously giving salvation to those who believe and that he's giving belief. Uh, But he goes beyond that and says that God is granting suffering for his sake. This is not merely the suffering of Uh, that God uses to make us more like Christ, God's hammer and chisel. This is the suffering that is granted so that the opponents of Christ might see the clear sign of their destruction and repent and turn from their sins and themselves embrace the Savior with the joy of faith. It's God's method of reaching out to them and saying, hey, hey, these Christians that you're persecuting, they have found something, something worth living for they found something worth dying for and don't you think you might want to take a second look at that because you can see that you are on a different path than they are on and you're on the path to destruction and they're on the path to salvation so take a look at that in colossians 1 paul said that he was filling up what was lacking in the sufferings of christ what was lacking 
in the suffering of Christ. Wasn't his death on the cross completely sufficient? Yes, it was. But it was a long time ago in a land far, far away. And Paul was suffering right there, right in front of them, to show his opponents that Christ was worth suffering for and worth dying for and how great the love of Christ was. He had his opportunity to advance the gospel through bold and open proclamation. The Philippians had their uh, opportunity to uh, react with unity and courage and advance the gospel in the face of their opposition. And we will have increasing opportunity to respond to opposition with boldness and with courage. Current events provide no lack of opportunities to speak with those in our sphere of influence about what's going on in the world and what God is up to. The uh, religious violence against American embassies, the election, the debate over the definition of marriage, the economy. God has something to say about all of those. And those people that value our opinion, our friends, our families, our neighbors, our co-workers, it's our chance to speak to them. We can speak not at all. We can be timid. And, and miss opportunities, or we can go hostile and be obnoxious and poison the name of Christ in the community, or we can respond with uh, humble service and speaking and acting in a manner consistent with the truths of the gospel, leading to the advance of the gospel, which leads to our joy and even to the joy of our opponents. Let us pray towards those ends. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can look in your word and see that you are at work, not just when things are sunny and smooth and clear sailing, but that you work especially through the challenges, the difficulties, and the hard times in our lives. Thank you that you are not only using those dark times to make us more like Christ, but that you are using those times to advance the gospel in our church, in our families, and even in the community among people who do not know you. Thank you that you use your servants to advance your gospel. And thank you that you are reaching out to your world. And I pray that this week, the people of Prairie View, as they go into their schools, their workplaces, their neighborhoods, their family gatherings, that they will be looking for opportunities to speak on your behalf. And that when those opportunities come, they will do so in a gracious way with a smile on their face and so not bring shame to your name either through hostility or through being timid lord give us courage give us boldness give us wisdom and guide our speech this week keep us close to you keep us in your word and may we see more and more of your son jesus christ through these songs as we go out this afternoon and in this week to come it's in your great name that we pray amen